Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Oh, that was good. Thanks, Pat, so much. We do welcome all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online and those of you uh, who are meeting at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, and South Calgary, and also in Crowfoot in Northwest Calgary. How about we here at Central just express our appreciation and love to those of us uh, in our church family who are meeting at other campuses. Can you do that? Let's just do that. Okay. Well, we're in a series in which we're exploring uh, what it is that Christians believe, and presently we're examining what the Bible teaches about our enemy, Satan, and how we can live in victory over him. But before we get into it, would you stand with me and join me in dedicating our time to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you today in knowing that you are so much greater than our enemy, Satan. Lord, please show us from your word how we can discern Satan's deception, how we can resist his accusations and live in the freedom and the victory that is ours through your death and resurrection. Open our ears to your word, focus our minds now, soften our hearts, and give us the courage and the will not only to abide in you, but to resist him who is in the world. For we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I've already said, we've been talking about how we can live in victory over Satan, and today I want to focus on the importance of knowing and claiming our position and authority in Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that one of the greatest reasons that so many Christians struggle with experiencing the victorious Christian life is because they have an incomplete or perhaps a distorted understanding of who they are in Christ. Dr. Neil Anderson asked, um, asked a young Christian woman uh, who was living a very troubled life. He said, who are you? And she immediately responded saying, I'm evil. Now she had done some evil things, but based on the deep remorse that she felt for the wrong that she did, Anderson says it was clear that at the core of her being, she wasn't evil. She was a child of God. But you see, she allowed her, allowed her failure to deceive her into believing that she was no good. In short, she allowed what she did to define who she was. Now, sadly, many Christians today are caught in the same downward spiral. They fail, they sin in some way, they mess up, and consequently, they see themselves as failures, which only leads to more failure. They have been deceived into believing that what we do determines who we are. And yet the Bible points in the opposite direction. It is not what we do that determines who we are. It is who we are in Christ that determines what we do. And as we, as we will see, what you believe about yourself 
and in particular what you believe about how God sees you, dramatically impacts the way that you live your life. Now, there are really only two primary sources for the development of our identity. One is our culture. In other words, what it is we do, the roles that we play, what other people think of us or how they perceive us. So one is our culture, the other is Christ. Now, basing our identity on what our culture esteems is problematic. Because let's face it, people are fickle and feelings change. Politicians understand this. Some of you may remember former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, head of the Liberal Party, a party that was loved in the East and despised in the West. Well, after stepping down as Prime Minister, Jean woke one morning to a glorious day. It was so nice out that he decided to take a walk to Parliament Hill. And as he was walking, he looked up at the sun and he said, Mr. Sun, tell me, who is the greatest prime minister who has ever lived? And the sun beamed down on Jean and said, there is no doubt that you were the greatest prime minister of Canada there ever was. Well, Jean's chest puffed out and he went back home feeling wonderful and important. Later that day, Jean went out for another walk. And he asked the son, you know, Mr. Son, I just want to be sure I heard you correctly this morning. Am I truly the greatest prime minister that Canada has ever had? And the son says, Jean, you are a disgrace. This country has never had a worse prime minister in its entire history. Well, Jean was shocked. He said, but this morning you said that I was the greatest prime minister who ever lived. How can that be? Why did you change your mind? The son responded this morning. I was in the East. <laughs> this evening, I am in the West. You see, it is not wise to base your identity on what people think. People will let you down. Professional athletes understand this. Make a great play, and people will throw a parade for you. Blow it, and they will never let you forget it. Some people base their identity on their vocation. But what happens if you get fired? Or what happens when you retire? Who are you then? Some base their identity on their looks. But what happens when your looks change dramatically because of illness, or because of an accident, or, like most of us, old age? Who are you then? Many women determine their identity around being a mom, and that's wonderful. But what happens when the kids grow up and they leave home, they move away, and they lead their own adult lives? Who are you then? The bottom line is being, uh, basing your identity on the things that our culture esteems will ultimately disappoint you because they are temporary. They do not last and therefore, they will let you down one day. The truth is, there is only one identity, one foundational truth that cannot be taken away from you as a Christian. And it is this. You are a child of God. 
Romans 8.16 affirms this truth. It says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Yes, you might be a child of God who happens to be an accountant or happens to be a father or an athlete, but the core source of our identity is our relationship with God. Now, sadly, many Christians don't fully understand who they are in Christ. Consequently, they are not experiencing the full, the joy-filled life that Christ intended for us to, uh, to live. I regularly have Christians confide that they struggle with thoughts and feelings of inferiority, feelings of worthlessness, that they're not important or that they're not qualified. Many have major doubts over whether they're loved and accepted by God. Many will say, yeah, God loves me, but they really question whether God accepts them. They're convinced that God's upset with them most of the time because they're falling short of his expectations for their lives. And consequently, they do not feel worthy to come to God with their needs and with their concerns. They do not feel worthy to be used by God to serve him. And of course, Satan, our enemy, he loves to accuse us. He loves to deceive us with lies like this. John 10.10 says, The thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. His agenda is to steal our joy, to kill our hope, and to destroy our very lives. He wants to destroy your influence in the lives of others. Do you realize that? He wants to destroy your health. He wants to destroy your marriage and family. He wants to destroy your very life. He is your enemy. He wants to defeat you, get you out of the action. But the good news is, because Jesus came to earth and died and rose again, we have all we need to resist the devil and to live in freedom and victory over defeating thoughts like this. Romans 8.37 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let's examine what the Bible says about who we are in Christ. One of the things that the Bible tells us about ourselves is that our spirit is the most important part of who we are. We are spiritual beings. Yes, we have a body. We have a soul. But we are fundamentally spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, we read this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Now, Dan Stone points out that this verse contains two truths. One truth talks about things that are seen and temporary. The other truth talks about things that are unseen and eternal. I referred to this last time, but we live in two dimensions. The eternal and the temporary or the natural or the earthly realms. Verse eight, as verse 18 indicates, the realm above the line is invisible. It is eternal. It is changeless. It is timeless. It is the realm of, of the spirit. 
and of God's absolute. It is the realm of completeness, wholeness, and perfection. The realm below the line is visible and temporary. We call it the natural or the earthly realm. It is the realm of creation having a beginning and an end. It is the realm of past, present, and future. It's the realm of time. It is the realm in which we see both good and evil. Whereas the unseen eternal realm is the realm of I am, the seen and the temporal realm is the realm of I am becoming. Now the Bible speaks to both of these realms. Both are vitally important to God because he made them both. Now when Adam and Eve were first created, their spirit was full of greatness, full of the glory of God himself. They were spiritually alive because they were in a close relationship with God. And as a result, God's character permeated every part of who Adam and Eve were, including their soul and their body. But when Adam rebelled against God, their relationship with God was fractured, resulting in the death of their spiritual life. And their body and soul became corrupted by sin. Evil entered the cosmos, resulting in hardship, pain, suffering, natural disasters, death. Romans 5.12, we read this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's referring to Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. In short, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God resulted not only in sin entering into the world, but death entering the world as well. Consequently, we are all born spiritually dead, separated from God. We're born physically alive, but prone to death. The moment we're born, we begin to die. Well, you say, isn't this a wonderful message? Thank you, Pastor Henry, for letting me know I'm a sinner and I'm dying. I can barely stand it. Any more good news you want to pass on? Well, actually, there is. You see, I'm bringing up some of the bad news because if we don't understand our problem, if we don't understand our predicament as human beings without God, we'll never understand and appreciate what God has done through Christ. Paul summarizes the good news in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still in that lost, spiritually dead condition, Christ died for us. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave, something happened in the eternal unseen realm that has the capacity to not only change each of us, but also how God sees us. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, in the spiritual unseen realm, God takes the sin that was on your account and he puts it on Christ's account. 
And he takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he puts it on your account. What an incredible exchange. It's what you call grace. Amazing grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, referring to Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.17 says this, For if by the trespass of one man, referring to Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Righteousness. What is it? Righteousness is a right standing before God. And it's a gift by His grace. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. Like any gift, all you can do is either to receive it or to reject it. And once you do, it's yours. At that point, you're no longer in Adam but you are in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are one with Christ. You are totally forgiven, righteous and perfect in the eyes of God. Not because you live perfectly in this life or in the earthly temporary realm, but because in the spiritual eternal realm, you are in Christ Jesus who is perfect and righteous in the sight of God. Hebrews 10, 14 puts it this way. Because of one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Not for a time. Mm -mm. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hmm. Just look at that verse. You see, that verse actually is speaking to both the spiritual and the earthly realms at the same time. You see it? Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, those of us who put our trust in Christ are in Christ and therefore in the eternal unseen realm, God sees us as spiritually alive, forgiven and righteous, even as Christ is righteous. However, in the natural earthly realm, we're still being made holy. That's what that verse says. We're still growing in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. One is complete, it's done, it's finished. The other one is a process of sanctification. We continue to grow. But what we need to understand is that if you have sincerely put your faith in Christ, then, the etern and then in the eternal realm, Jesus and your spirit are one. It's no longer God up there and you down here. No, Jesus is alive in you. And you are spiritually alive in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, your old self, is gone. The new, your life in Christ, has come. You're a new creation. 
You've been made spiritually alive through Christ. You have a new identity. You have a new family. You are now a child of God's, which means you're at peace with God. God no longer sees you as an object of his wrath, but as his child and as his friend. Now, friends, this is why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you want to know what's there for. He says, therefore, in light of the amazing truths that we've just reviewed in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, therefore, in light of those amazing truths, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does no condemnation mean? It means God does not reject you or kick you out of his family when you sin. Because remember, in the eternal spiritual realm, you are already righteous and acceptable. Not because you live perfectly here on earth. But because, as I said, you are in Christ. He's the one who's righteous and acceptable. Furthermore, no condemnation means that God is not angry with you when you struggle with sin in your life. Oh, you may get angry at yourself the way that the Apostle Paul did when you look at Romans chapter 7. You know, when he says, I don't know why I do this. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. You may find yourself saying that from time to time. But God isn't upset with you. He's patient with you. He is like a loving father watching his little boy begin to take his first steps. If the child stumbles and falls, the father doesn't get upset with the child. He gets him up. He encourages him. He shows him how to do it right. As I've said many times before, God's far more interested in what's going on in your heart than he is in your behaviors because let's be honest, your behaviors reflect what's going on in your heart. It's the direction of your heart, not the perfection of your life that God's most concerned about. Does he see you walking toward him? Even when you fail, getting back up and continuing to walk toward him. Does he see that in your heart? Thirdly, no condemnation means God won't punish you when you sin. Because remember, in the spiritual realm, you're no longer the object of God's wrath. Why are you no longer, why are we no longer the object of God's wrath as his church? Because Jesus took all of God's wrath that was directed at us before we became Christ's followers. And Jesus took it all upon himself on the cross. So we're no longer objects of wrath. As his forever child, he no longer relates to you as a judge. He relates to you as a father. Now, having said all that, let me be very clear that Paul is not giving us a license to sin. In Romans 6, 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. 
Some translations say, no, no, no. Church, sin may not change your position in Christ in the eternal realm. But it can lead to all kinds of negative consequences in the natural earthly realm. For example, if you disregard the law of gravity and you jump off, say, a two-story building and you break your leg, you are simply reaping what you have sown. And that's why we keep the law, folks. We don't keep it as some kind of legalistic requirement. No, we keep it to honor God, but fundamentally we do keep it so that it will go well with us in this life. Sin hurts us physically. Sin hurts us emotionally. It destroys our joy. Sin hurts other people around us, especially those who are closest to us. There's things that we do that we know are sin. We think, oh, it's not hurting anybody. I'm telling you. If the Bible says that something is a sin, if something's wrong, and we do it, there is a price that comes with it in the earthly, natural realm. Other people get hurt. We get hurt. It breaks our fellowship with God. Our relationship with God isn't broken when we sin, but our fellowship is. In the same way that if you have an argument with your wife and you both decide you're going to you know, be stubborn for a while, and during that time that you're not talking to each other, your fellowship is broken. But your marriage isn't over, is it? No. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. Our relationship isn't broken, but our fellowship is. Furthermore, when you sin, your usefulness to God is limited. God can't use you effectively. In John 15, 4, Jesus said that if, if you want to bear fruit... You need to remain in the vine. You need to stay connected to the Lord. You need to abide in him. You need to walk in the spirit. You need to stay in fellowship with him. And as we just discussed, the sin affects that. And finally, sin also brings loving discipline from the Lord. Hebrews 12:6 says, "The Lord disciplines those he loves." When you get off track, he loves you too much to not correct you, to not discipline you if it's necessary. In the same way that a loving father or mother will not allow a child to wander off into dangerous territory without bringing correction and, if necessary, discipline. But we have to understand that God doesn't punish his children. The purpose of punishment is to enact justice for wrongdoing. The purpose of discipline is to correct. It is to promote growth so that you'll become all that you were created to be. Discipline sometimes may feel like punishment, but it is never the heart of God. He disciplines, but he does not punish his children. That is why we read in John 16, 8, that the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. 
However, the Holy Spirit doesn't lay a big guilt trip on us. That is Satan's specialty. The Bible refers to Satan as an accuser. And some people ask me, well, how can you tell the difference between Satan accusing me and the Holy Spirit convicting me? Well, there's a big difference, folks. Satan will hit you with general, general accusations like, uh, you're worthless. You know, you're incompetent. You're hopeless. You're a failure. All those kind of things. The Holy Spirit of God will not attack you like that, but will calmly say things like, that was wrong. You need to deal with that. Stop doing that. But the point is, living in Christ means that even though you take sin seriously, you no longer live under the fear of condemnation for reasons we've already talked about. And that's why understanding the fact that we live in these two dimensions, the eternal and the earthly, is so important. We need to grasp onto this Even as we read the scriptures, there are passages of scripture that speak to the eternal realm. There are passages that speak to the earthly realm. And we must understand that. Now you say, well, okay, pastor, I've got this issue. If, as Paul says in Romans 6, 2, I have died to sin, why is there sin still kicking around in my life? Well, you see, there's two truths that we need to understand in relation to this. And the first one has to do with the two dimensions that I just referred to. When the Apostle Paul says, we died to sin, he's not talking about the earthly realm. He's talking about something that took place in the eternal realm. When we put our trust in Christ, we died to our old self, to our old Lord whom we served up to that point in time. We died to that old guy. Romans 6.6. Paul writes, essentially that a miracle took place in the eternal spiritual realm. This is what happened. Our old self, when we embrace Christ, our old self was crucified and buried with Christ setting us free from our old self and our slavery to sin and uniting and making us alive in Christ through his resurrection. This is how it reads. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. All of this is talking about what happened in the eternal realm. You see, this did not happen in the earthly realm. In fact, it isn't something we did at all. This was totally accomplished through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, the second truth that we need to understand in relation to the question, why is sin still kicking around in me, is that even though we died to sin, 
when we became a new creation in Christ Jesus in the eternal realm. In the earthly realm, the sinful thoughts and habits that we developed over a lifetime, they didn't die. In other words, no one pushed the delete button in our memory bank. You know, um, every few months, my iPhone requires me to change my security code, which I appreciate for security reasons, but also which I find incredibly annoying. Because for several days, and as I get older, sometimes for several weeks, after I change the code, out of habit, I keep punching in the old code. And it goes, eh, and then I gotta do it all over again. Oh yeah, new code, new code. It's no different when it comes to the sinful habits and defense mechanisms that we've established over the years. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we will be transformed, but it's going to require the renewing of our minds. It's going to require us relearning things. And as we do that, we're going to experience many failures along the way. But you see, because we're alive in Christ, there's something in us that just says... I want to keep moving toward Jesus. I want to begin to defeat these old habits. And folks, as we increasingly yield ourselves completely to the Holy Spirit, he will transform us into the image of our Savior. It will happen. Because we are no longer in Adam, but we're in Christ. And the life of Christ in us is more powerful and more persistent than the life of Adam ever was. Ray Stedman illustrates this principle this way. He says, the home next to ours has been inhabited by several different families over the years. The first family was a rather difficult family, the kind of people who would never keep the yard of the house clean or in order. And soon after they moved in to their brand new home, they began to show the effects of their lifestyle. The yard was littered with trash and garbage. The lawn was dead for lack of care. The house was in shambles, never clean or in order. Well, the day came, he writes, when those neighbors moved out and new neighbors moved in. And it wasn't long until it became evident to us that a different kind of people were now living next to us. They cleaned up the house. They repaired it. They painted it. The yard was cleaned up, the lawn was dug up and replanted, and everything was well taken care of ever since. Ray says things were completely different. So what happened? Well, you see, folks, there was a dramatic change because there was a change of ownership. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says in Romans 6 that we died to sin and are alive in Christ Jesus. If Christ is truly your Lord and King, you may not live perfectly, but overall your life will reflect the character of Jesus. Your life will reflect the love of Jesus and the things that matter to Jesus.
but make no mistake, every day we will experience all kinds of temptations and troubles and accusations from Satan that will make us wonder if God cares at all, if we're a child of God, that will make us wonder if we're accepted by God. But God essentially says, don't you doubt me on this. A transformation has occurred in your life in the eternal realm. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your identity has changed. You are my child. And as my child, you have a new authority. Not only to say no to sin, but the accusations of the enemy. I'll close with this. Erwin Lutzer says, imagine that you're in an apartment complex and the landlord is very difficult to get along with. He regularly barges into your apartment when you're not there. He breaks things. He scatters everything around. And then he sends you a bill accusing you of not looking after your place. Let's say that he constantly deceives you, makes all kinds of promises that he doesn't fulfill. He raises the rent so high so that you can't pay it. And you're forced to actually borrow from him what you owe. And eventually you become hopelessly indebted to him to the point of being his slave. But then one day, the entire apartment complex is sold and is under new management. The new manager comes to you and says, I want you to know that the debt that you owed the old guy, the other landlord, that's been taken care of. And your rent is paid up for good because I've paid for it. I'd love for us to be friends. And my desire is to help you achieve your God-given potential. Well, you can't believe this. I mean, this is too good to be true. But while you're rejoicing, lo and behold, your old landlord, he barges into your apartment, waving all kinds of papers in your face, which he purports are legal documents, and he says, you still owe me for everything. You had better pay up or else. Now, you can do one of two things. Either you can tell him to leave because you know he's lying and that he no longer has any authority over you. Or you can cave into fear. And you continue, can continue to be his slave and you can keep paying the bills that have already been paid for. Now you see, folks, that is where some Christians are at. They have a new landlord. They have a new Lord and King in Jesus Christ. But they keep being slaves to their former landlord. How unfortunate. And so the old landlord comes along and he knocks on the door of their lives and he says, you have to pay for this bill called worry. He gets us all in the flap and we just pay the bill. Even though the Lord says, do not worry for your father knows what you need and will meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus, we just pay the bill to the old landlord by worrying for days or weeks 
losing sleep and inner peace. The old landlord barges into our life, hands us a bill called fear of failure. And even though the scriptures promise that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, we just pay the bill anyways. We cave into fear and feelings of inadequacy. Or maybe the old landlord comes and hands you a bill called bitterness. And many people just pay up, convinced there's no way that they can release that bitterness. Church, make no mistake. If there is one thing that Satan wants you to think and believe, it is that embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord has not changed things very much, if at all. That's what he wants you to think. The Bible has a completely different message. It says when you are in Christ, everything is new. Everything. When you are in Christ, the old allegiances have been broken. When you are in Christ, the old debts have been paid. When you are in Christ, you have a new start. When you are in Christ, you have a new freedom and power in your life through Jesus Christ. When you are in Christ, you have a new perspective on life. When you, have a new, when you are in Christ, you have a new meaning in life. When you are in Christ, you have a new family in life. When you are in Christ, you have new authority in life. And you don't have to listen. You don't have to give in to your old, old landlord anymore despite his threats, his accusations, or his whining. Satan was declawed. He was detoothed at the cross. And all he can do is roar at us and gum us a little bit. Church, you are children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are created in God's image. And because of Christ's finished work on the cross, you have been justified and positionally declared righteous by him. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be afraid of, only a dynamic and exciting life to live to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Let's stand together. Again, I just want you to stand before the Lord and just open your hands to him. What have you heard him say to you today? What bills have you been paying unnecessarily to your old landlord? How do you need to respond to the Lord today? Just take a moment and do that right now.
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the reminder that we don't serve you to gain your acceptance. We're accepted by you and so out of love for you, we serve you. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that we don't follow and obey you to earn your love. No, we are loved and accepted by you. And so we want to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us it is not what we do that determines who we are. But it is who we are in you that determines what we do. Lord, may these truths set us free today. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is still in bondage because they are not in right relationship with you. May today be the day they reach out to you in faith and make their peace with you. Again, Lord, we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. Amen and amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.